Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, we're talking with Andrew Boyd about his book on the story of how Britain deployed their navy to defend their interests in the Far East in the years leading up to and during the Second World War, entitled The Royal Navy in Eastern Waters, Lynchpin of Victory. Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Um, yes, um, I started my working life in uh, the Royal Navy, and I served as uh, a submariner for a number of years. I then had a career move to uh, our diplomatic service, um, and I spent most of my working career there. Um, I then worked briefly for a, a defense and security company in the private sector, and I then decided I wanted to do something rather different, so I began uh, a research, and that led to uh, uh, a doctorate at the University of uh, University of Buckingham, and that um, led directly into this book. It provided uh, the focus and the research base that uh, led me to undertake this journey. What was it that led you to choose this as a topic in particular? I think initially I was I was curious as to uh, um, exactly why the Royal Navy, as I saw it, performed so badly uh, during uh, the first part of the the war with Japan. Um, I mean, I'd read a certain amount about that period. I was pretty familiar with the standard histories and the background, but I felt there were I sensed there were unexplained. Um, questions that I didn't feel had been uh, addressed. For example, um, was our knowledge of the Japanese Navy and its capability really so uh, woeful as uh, most histories appear to suggest? That's one of the things that you made clear at the very uh, beginning of your book, in which you explained that there's a lot of misconceptions that have accrued over the years about that very question. You know, what did the Royal Navy know? Uh, to what degree were they prepared? How were they prepared? And as you explain, that there's a lot of this misunderstanding, which is uh, sort of encrusted the topic, that your book, in effect, strips away to get as much clearer understanding as to how the Royal Navy approached this very vexing issue. I was wondering if you could explain that issue in, in a bit more detail to start with, the, the challenge that the Royal Navy faced in the 30s and 40s regarding uh, their empire in uh, East Asia, the, the challenge of Japan, and, and you know, how the Royal Navy you know, sort of began to approach this problem in the 1930s. Okay, well... I think I'd begin by um, by, by looking at um, um, the picture uh, Britain faced uh, in the aftermath of uh, uh, the First World War. And 
essentially globally, um, Britain only faced one uh, um, credi- credible threat, and that was uh, um, and, and that was uh, Japan. Um, the uh, the European uh, uh, powers were either. Uh, uh, disarmed in the case of uh, in the case of Germany, the recent enemy, or they were essentially they were essentially friendly. Um, so the only threat on the horizon, and it was a theoretical threat rather than a real one, uh, in the aftermath of the war and indeed through the twenties, was, was was Japan. And Japan was perceived as a potential threat purely because it had the third largest navy in the world, and. Uh, if it so chose, it uh, would be in a position to uh, um, to threaten uh, Britain's considerable interests in the Far East. Uh, so the colonies in in Southeast Asia, of which Malaya was the most important, and of course the dominions of Australia and New Zealand. And um, through the 20s into the 30s, the key assumptions Britain made were that uh, not only was Japan the only credible threat but the only way that uh, uh, Japan could uh, um, could pose that threat was through naval power, um, because uh, it, it would be it would have to project its power from a, from a distance, so that could only be done by sea. Therefore, Britain would have to counter that uh, threat by by sea. Um, but since Japan had the third largest navy in the world, uh, that would be a considerable undertaking. I mean, the Royal Navy would have to deploy something like two-thirds of its strength to be sure of countering Japan. So the big question Britain faced through the 20s and 30s was how would it do that? Would it maintain a fleet permanently in the Far East, which would be extremely expensive, indeed ruinously expensive, particularly as uh, the world went through the Great Depression? Or would it merely plan to deploy such a fleet if it had to in time of crisis? and it chose the latter option. Uh, If it was going to deploy a fleet, it needed a base, and the base that was selected was Singapore. So the strategy became the Singapore strategy. Um, Now, as that strategy was uh, was developed, there were no shortage of critics who said, uh, uh, this is essentially crazy, Um, were... Um, trying to defend a two-hemisphere empire with a one-hemisphere navy. Uh, we don't, don't have adequate resources, not only to uh, secure interests at, at home, but to project uh, a very large part of our navy to the far, to the far side of the world. Um, so, in a sense, the first part of my book is, is, testing, is testing that argument, um, was the critics' uh, case valid, or was the uh, the policy and the strategy developed by the British government and the Royal Navy actually a perfectly credible one? And as you present it in the book, this sort of analysis had to take place on a number of different levels. You had to look at uh, the operational capability of the Royal Navy, uh, their preparations for it, all sorts of components that sometimes have not been factored into considering this question. Um, that, 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 that's correct. So, uh, um, I mean, if one goes down a, 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 fairly, a fairly obvious list, what were Japan's intentions? Um, I've already said during the 20s, uh, 
I mean, the the threat from Japan was was theoretical rather than real. I mean, the prospect that Japan in the twenties would uh, would would want to attack uh, Malaya was uh, was somewhat uh, was somewhat fanciful. It was more plausible that there might be a a major dispute uh, over the China trade, where Britain and indeed the United States had significant commercial interests in China, and that might clash with uh, uh, the commercial ambitions um, of, of of Japan. So, so the concept of a major trade dispute leading to uh, uh, to conflict, and as the conflict developed, uh, Japan seeking to uh, um, uh, curtail Britain's uh, ability to to intervene in a trade war by uh, uh, carrying out diversionary action against uh, Malaya was uh, just about just about plausible. Um, now, as as you go into the 30s, um, the situation um, or the or the the possibilities that Britain confronts uh, begin to deteriorate. Japan becomes uh, um, becomes more aggressive. It uh, it develops uh, major ambitions in China, and uh, and eventually mounts uh, a full scale uh, uh, invasion of uh, of China. That uh, uh, that clearly greatly heightens the risk of a uh, a major uh, uh, trade war with. Uh, Britain or indeed uh, the U.S. Um, there are people who begin to f- fear that uh, Japan won't stop with China. It will begin to look hungrily at uh, um, the resource-rich uh, uh, territories of, uh, of, of Southeast Asia. Uh, so the various European empires, not just the British Empire territories, but those of uh, France and, uh, and, and the Netherlands. Um, so, uh, so that's the sort of political, uh, strategic uh, threat context through the uh, the twenties and thirties. Um, Britain also has to assess well against that uh, threat context. Um, what's the actual power of the Japanese Navy to uh, um, uh, to deliver a credible attack on? Uh, um, on British investors or, or, or territories, um, how's their navy structured? What sort of force would be needed to uh, to fight a defensive war, or indeed to uh, um, to mount uh, a more a more aggressive defence? Would it be credible for for Britain not only to secure uh, its territories in Southeast Asia, but uh, to ensure the safety of its commercial interests in China? Um, how credible will it be to to mount a naval war? Um, um, would it be possible to uh, to coerce Japan into uh, in, into into a settlement by uh, uh, attacking her trade on a more global basis? So, as you're making this assessment, what was your conclusion about? The preparations of the Royal Navy during this period uh, were there were there uh, ships uh, capable of undertaking such a mission? Did they have the resources they needed for their plans, or and 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 to what degree did those resources and plans define what missions they felt were were realistic? I think we 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 have to see a, 
um, a progression across uh, across the interwar period. Um, I mean, dur- dur- during the 1920s, um, the Royal Navy is not only comfortably the largest uh, um, navy in the world, but it, it, it faces no significant threats at, at, at home. Um, so it, it can easily uh, dispatch um, a large part of its strength to, uh, to the Far East and, uh, um, and comfortably match uh, any force that, uh, uh, that Japan can deploy. So it's, it's cr- if I if I may interject at that point the the challenge is simply supporting that fleet which is where Singapore comes into exactly it was so, a question of whether we have the vessels it's exactly that supporting them well so if it's going to deploy something like two thirds of its strength to comfortably match uh, Japan um, logistically that's uh, still a considerable challenge um, because to uh, um, uh, to challenge uh, a Japanese threat and coerce Japan into a, uh, a satisfactory settlement is probably going to take uh, uh, a number of years, so that uh, two-thirds of uh, the Royal Navy has to be supported, which requires uh, a major base, Singapore, as, uh, um, as I've mentioned. Um, now, as we get into the 1930s, things become more difficult, um, uh, Britain has to think about uh, uh, potential threats uh, in, uh, in 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 Europe. Um, first from from Germany, and then in the mid 30s, uh, Italy becomes uh, a potential threat as well. Um, so um, the question then becomes: what what size of force would be needed to uh, uh, to handle those threats in Europe? Um, and what would that allow to be uh, deployed to deal with a, a simultaneous threat from Japan in, in, in the Far East? And, of course, it's, it's too simple to say, well, we'll just keep a third at home and uh, deploy uh, um, two-thirds overseas because the two-thirds is going to have to be deployed to the Far East for a considerable, th- considerable period. Um, and I think... The answer, the answer is that um, um, the Royal Navy adopts a, a, a pretty pragmatic approach. It uh, it recognises that uh, there are going to be limits to uh, the force it can deploy to the east, um, but despite those limits, it ought to be able to deploy enough, uh, whatever the situation in Europe, to fight a, a defensive war. So, what does a defensive war means? It means it can secure uh, Malaya and um, Australia and New Zealand from any serious uh, Japanese attack, but it probably can't um, um, conduct offensive operations uh, north of Singapore and um, um, challenge Japan uh, over the China trade. Um, And that means that probably not only Britain's commercial concessions in China, but in the worst case, Hong Kong may have to be uh, may have to be sacrificed. 
you're explaining how the Royal Navy is approaching this in terms of deployment of ships. But as you also point out in the book, it's not a simple matter of saying X amount of ships to respond to the threat. The two-thirds isn't just a fixed number of ships, that of, of any type of ship. As you explained, it has to be a calculation of, of capital ships, uh, cruisers, destroyers, and so forth. And they can't just simply send any ships because, as you described, Japan qualitatively a first-class navy, and that a lot of the ships that they have to consider sending are some of the best ships in the fleet, which means that the ships that that they're relying upon for to face the threats closer to home are then theoretically inferior. Um, that's uh, um, that's correct. As we go through um, um, the thirties, uh, the Royal Navy's um, in no doubt that. Um, uh, the Imperial Japanese uh, Navy is, is a very capable opponent. They're uh, um, investing uh, heavily in developing uh, um, their, uh, their their strength. They're conducting uh, an important uh, modernization uh, program for their um, capital ships, their battleships. Um, but they're also uh, developing a significant uh, carrier, carrier force. Um, so, um, so as, as, as you say, that, uh, that, that means it's not just a question of numbers. It's, uh, it's a question of, uh, balancing, um, the, uh, perceived, uh, Japanese quality. Um, and from, uh, um, 19, 1935, that does become, uh, an, an increasing challenge. The Royal Navy would always prefer to, uh, um, to have equal numbers to uh, uh, confront uh, the Japanese threat, but uh, through the through the late 30s, it recognises that that uh, is, um, is is unlikely to be possible. So, um, so the response to that initially is to uh, um, focus ever more on conducting a. Um, a limited defensive war to reining in the ambitions of what can be achieved in, uh, uh, in, in the Far East to concentrate on being able to secure the vital interests of uh, Malaya and Australia and New Zealand and to forego anything more ambitious. There's also this other dimension to which you refer that uh, crops up in a lot of these discussions leading up to 1940, up to the end of 1941, about the idea of deterrence, that perhaps the force itself, once deployed, would be sufficient to not defeat the Japanese, but in fact forestall aggression in the first place. Well, I think what I would um, see rather as, as we move um, um, to 1930, um, 1938, um, the the threat in Europe are becoming uh, are becoming more pronounced, um, and Admiralty um, um, is, um, is is well aware that uh, that it faces not just uh, um, a two hemisphere threat, um, a threat from uh, um, Germany and. The North Sea and Atlantic, and Japan and the Far East, but um, the problem of Italy and the Mediterranean. Um, so, um, so it faces three potential uh, Axis enemies, and uh, 
while Germany in uh, the late 1930s uh, still has a comparatively small navy, in many ways it's still a nuisance force. Um, the Italian navy is um, is a very considerable force. And um, you see much debate in 1938-39 over the balance between uh, the Mediterranean and the Far East. Britain recognizes it's going to be very difficult to cope with uh, um, uh, hold, holding a force um, to protect uh, the UK homeland against Germany, but also dealing with um, simultaneous needs in the Mediterranean and the Far East. And up to 1939, the cardinal principle is that the Far East will become first and uh, the Mediterranean will, will be sacrificed. As we go into 1939, that um, view begins to, be, begins to be challenged. There's a feeling that uh, Britain has considerable interests in the eastern Mediterranean um, and, and the Middle East, and um, those cannot be lightly discarded. So you see the Royal Navy there for struggling to um, achieve a, a balance there. Um, would it be possible to uh, um, maintain uh, its uh, primary peacetime fleet in uh, in the Mediterranean um, for a longer period after uh, Japan uh, um, opens uh, hostilities in uh, in the east? Could a, a small preemptive force be? Uh, uh, a defensive screen, in a way, be deployed to 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 the east, while uh, um, uh, Britain uh, makes a judgment as to what's needed to protect its interests in uh, in the Mediterranean. So, in a sense, you see a much more flexible um, deployment and reinforcement strategy developing as as Britain seeks to to balance uh, limited resources between two theatres. Mediterranean and uh, and Far East. And of course, when war comes, it's not in 1939 a war between Germany against Germany and Italy and Japan. It's a war against Germany and Italy, and Japan is still technically or officially at peace with Britain. How does the war, the uh, first year or so of the war, uh, affect this calculus that uh, the planners and politicians are, are making about the the defense of the Far East? Well, the key change is, um, um, is, is, is the fall of France. Um, so when, when the European war breaks out in, in September 1939, of course, Britain has, uh, has France as, uh, as its ally, and the French have a, have a very significant navy, and... Um, um, that French Navy is, uh, is not only a, a potential support um, in dealing with any German threat in the Atlantic, but um, it, can, it can take on much of the weight against uh, Italy as well. Um, so, the, uh, so the initial assumption is that uh, France will provide some support in the Atlantic, but will devote its main effort to the Western Mediterranean, and it will secure the, Mediterranean, the Western Mediterranean on behalf of uh, the Allies, while Britain will look after the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, now, had Japan intervened at the start of, at the, start of the war, um, 
Britain's strategy would be to uh, uh, to ask France to extend its force, uh, it, its support uh, eastwards through the Mediterranean to keep Italy in check while it deployed its uh, East Mediterranean fleet as necessary to uh, uh, to hold off uh, Japan in the, in, in the Far East. Um, now that um, um, that policy was uh, never, of course, tested because Japan uh, decided to uh, uh, to keep out of the war. Um, and the main reason that Japan kept out was because it was uh, um, completely preoccupied by its extensive war in China at that time, um, and um, it had um, plenty on plenty on its plate without. Uh, uh, without worrying about uh, um, furthering ambitions in uh, uh, Southeast Asia or embarking on a, an additional confrontation with European powers or indeed, of course, with with the United States. Now, the fall of France makes things um, self-evidently very different. Um, at a stroke, the support of the French Navy is gone, but... Um, it's even worse than that. There is the possibility that uh, the French Navy may either fall into uh, German hands or uh, um, the uh, uh, the new uh, Vichy French regime could even uh, become a, an ally of Germany. Uh, however uneasy such an alliance would would would, would be. Um, and meanwhile, Italy has entered um, entered the war. And um, so Britain uh, is uh, in uh, <clears throat> at sea, standing alone against both Germany and Italy, with the possibility of uh, um, France um, uh, join, join, joining in as well. Now, the British judgment is that it's strong enough to cope with uh, with all those enemies, certainly Germany and Italy, and. Um, it uh, it takes early action to remove uh, any threat from uh, the residual French fleet, but what it can't do is cope with um, a Japanese threat as well. And of course, the temptation for Japan to uh, intervene has increased because uh, um, Japan is well aware of uh, British preoccupation in Europe. Um, France has been removed from the scene, so. Um, it's very tempting to move into uh, into French Indochina, um, not just because it's uh, um, a wealthy territory, but because uh, it uh, it helps them to uh, prosecute uh, the war in China. Um, so Britain's answer to that is to look to uh, the United States to uh, to guard its uh, to guard its interests in. Uh, uh, in the east, and that really sort of takes us into a into a further phase of the book, where I look at uh, um, how uh, the United States responds to that uh, to that prospect, and indeed how it sees its uh, um, its interests uh, in uh, the period following the fall of France. 
It's very interesting to consider that there's quite a bit written about growing British-American cooperation in uh, 1940-41. You have, of course, the, uh, the the famous conference in August of 41 between uh, Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt. And yet you detail how there is this strong current of cooperation between British and the British and the Americans regarding uh, East Asia and, and Southeast Asia that is happening at the same time, which doesn't get anywhere near the same degree of attention. Um, no, that, that's right. I mean, I think, I think the way I would summarize the, um, uh, the Anglo-American naval relationship, and it, and it is complicated. It is, uh, um, I mean, through the 30s, it's... Uh, it it's moved from a a relationship marked by um, uneasy rivalry to um, um, to gradual awareness that uh, um, Britain and the U.S. share certain common interests, particularly in uh, uh, in, in the Far East. They are both worried about Japanese uh, ambition. They both have. Uh, Significant interests in uh, uh, in China. Those, those those interests are both commercial, but also to an extent uh, uh, political. Um, and um, and naval power is for both countries the main means of uh, exerting uh, influence and indeed pressure on Japan. So uh, so in 1938, one sees the beginnings of uh, a much more formal. Uh, phase of uh, uh, cooperation as as the two countries look at uh, ways they could uh, um, they could cope with a more aggressive uh, uh, Japan Japan together. Now, when the war starts in um, um, in, in in Europe, um, that doesn't initially uh, um, change things uh, uh, very, very very much. But the fall of France certainly does, because the U.S. Uh, concern following the fall of France is that uh, um, Britain's uh, um, Britain could be uh, uh, invaded and um, um, uh, fall to uh, uh, to German conquest uh, uh, very quickly through the summer of 1940. And if it does, what will happen to its fleet? And although it seems um, um, rather strange when we look back with the benefit of hindsight in uh, in that summer of 1940, um, the United States is uh, uh, is deeply anxious not just about uh, the consequences of uh, uh, Britain falling under German control, but of uh, Germany extending its uh, its ambitions. Um, Across across the Atlantic into uh, in, into South America, and uh, beginning to pose uh, a major threat as Washington sees it to uh, to American interests in uh, in, the, in the Western Hemisphere. I mean, as I say, that um, that now looks uh, uh, all rather rather fanciful, but it was certainly acutely felt at the time. And the American response to that is to uh, to begin to um, um, 
to move naval forces from uh, the Pacific, where uh, the vast bulk of its uh, navy has always been deployed, um, into uh, into into the Atlantic, and in a way, the story through the winter of uh, 1941 uh, is: uh, Will 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 Britain survive? Um, can we help it survive? What additional forces do we need uh, to move into the Atlantic to to achieve that? Uh, if 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 Britain doesn't survive, how are we going to cope? Well, the answer is we're going to have to prioritise the Atlantic uh, o- 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 over the Pacific, and all of this, of course, means that those ideas for cooperation in uh, uh, constraining Japan in in the Far East. Um, come under major challenge. So how do British admirals respond to that challenge in uh, 19, over the course of 1941? Because during that period, they're still very much engaged in this war against the Germans and the Italians. But now that threat to Japan is beginning to transition from theoretical to real. Um, that's, that's, that's correct. Now, um, while America um, worries that uh, that Britain could fall, of course, Britain is um, um, is significantly more uh, optimistic. And uh, and I mean, if one looks at the balance of, in detail at the balance of power between uh, uh, Britain and Germany, and not just in naval power, that uh, that optimism is uh, is justified. Britain still has. Um, the largest, the largest navy in the world. Um, the German navy has suffered very badly in the in the, in the Norwegian campaign. The German navy is uh, in no position in the summer of 1940 to support uh, to support an invasion. Um, the German uh, U-boat force um, um, is a potential problem. And that problem is uh, is vastly exacerbated by the fall of France because Germany uh, um, acquires uh, access, of course, to uh, to to the French ports, making it much easier to deploy uh, uh, the U-boats into the Atlantic. But um, but that threat is still constrained at this time because Germany has not uh, invested significantly in its U-boat force in 1939 to 40 and in fact its strength doesn't grow at all over over over, over that year so the german you make another point you make another uh, sorry point you make another point though that that really plays into this in your book which is that Though the British have the German, you know, they're, they're managing the German threat to some degree, and 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 their their German th- fleet poses a problem. You, you point out how the uh, the pace of the war, the 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 where it's posing on the ships of the Royal Navy, is forcing it to rethink a lot of its calculations for the fleet that it's trying to build, which it intends to use against Japan. You describe, for example, how they have to postpone or uh, uh, the the development of or. The the, um, get to halt construction for a period of time on the aircraft carriers. Uh, they have to postpone the uh, the uh, launch the the, the uh, construction of the Lion class battleships, and those were all part of the thinking just a couple years previously as to how they were going to respond to Japan. Now all that has to be put on the back burner. Um, that, that that that's correct. So I, I should perhaps 
interject that through through the late 30s, I mean, one of the themes of the book is that uh, um, in many ways, contrary to uh, um, to popular history, uh, which has Britain uh, rearming uh, um, very reluctantly and, um, and and very late, that's not really true of uh, of the Royal Navy. Um, where the government does sanction quite significant investment, and um, I think it, it, it's fair to say that in 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 the late 30s, um, the Royal Navy pursues a pretty ambitious uh, uh, program of uh, uh, modernisation and uh, um, and and development, which is very much directed at being able to fight a two hemisphere war. And if one looks at uh, both uh, the new capital ship battleship force that's uh, that's laid down in 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 the late 30s and is planned to be laid down, and the carrier uh, fleet, this is absolutely directed at having enough to cope with any uh, conceivable threat from Germany, but also Japan simultaneously. Now, as as you as as you suggest, um, following. Uh, um, the outbreak of uh, war, but even more so after the fall of France, um, Britain recognises that um, um, it's going to have to make adjustments, major adjustments to that to that program. And effectively, what it does is to uh, um, suspend uh, the development of uh, the battleship and, to an extent, the carrier program, and pour those resources into. Uh, building up its anti-submarine forces. And it does that actually remarkably effectively and um, and remarkably quickly. So while the Germans are not building up their, uh, their U-boat strength during uh, 1940, Britain is absolutely building up its, uh, its anti-submarine force. Um, and it precedes uh, the German shift uh, of resources into uh, into U-boats by about a year, and I would argue that that year is uh, is crucial. Um, it means that uh, Britain is deploying uh, uh, new escorts much more quickly than Germany is deploying U-boats. They can be built more quickly. They can certainly be deployed at sea more quickly, and Germany is um, is in catch-up mode. And uh, and up to the point that America enters the war, um, although Britain goes through some difficult times, its uh, its control of the North Atlantic <laughs> lifeline is not seriously threatened because of that shift towards uh, uh, its anti-submarine force. But as you explain, like any trade-off, it comes at a price, and that price, in a sense, is starts to be paid in late '41. When, uh, as you explained, the, uh, explain, the, the British have to consider the fact that they can't, that they can't rely, solely rely solely upon the Americans and that they need to have a force. And yet, and the, yet capital the capital ships that they understandably uh, uh, downgraded in priority are not there for when they need them. So they have to come up with some other means of, of putting together a force to deal with this growing Japanese threat. Um, that, that, that's correct. So, it, in a sense, if we come back to um, 
um, the, the 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 American relationship and 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 link that with uh, um, these um, um, uh, resource changes that uh, uh, that, uh, that that Britain makes. So through the winter of 1940-41, um, we've already um, said that uh, America fears that uh, uh, Britain could uh, um, could still um, um, lose control in the Atlantic, with uh, serious consequences for American interests. So, so America must. Uh, both do what it can to support Britain, but uh, be prepared to uh, shift uh, a significant part of its navy into the Atlantic under almost any likely um, uh, under any likely scenario. Um, Britain is um, is more confident, but of course, um, at this stage, sees great advantage in encouraging as much American support as it can get because. Uh, um, everything America does makes it uh, uh, makes it easier easier for Britain. Um, and through uh, early 1941, mid 1941, of course, America does uh, provide uh, increasing assistance, particularly in the Western Atlantic, which uh, uh, releases um, uh, British and, um, and and Canadian forces for uh, uh, deployment. Uh, in the eastern and central Atlantic. Um, now, the problem for Britain is the more she encourages uh, uh, America to intervene in the Atlantic, the, the less there is in, uh, left in, uh, in the Pacific. Um, so at the same time as she's encouraging uh, uh, America to give us support in the Atlantic, um, Britain is, um, is trying to encourage uh, um, America to provide a defensive screen against uh, Japan in, in the Far East and indeed really to take over the defense of British interests in, uh, in, in the Far East, even to the extent of uh, substituting for that uh, always long-planned uh, British fleet in, in Singapore. So instead of Britain sending a fleet to Singapore, from the British point of view, it would be ideal if uh, the U.S. Pacific Fleet was moved from Pearl Harbor to Singapore. Now, from uh, the American point of view, that looks completely um, un unacceptable. They've uh, shifted significant forces um, um, into the Atlantic, and there's no way that uh, they're going to uh, move the balance from uh, from Pearl Harbor uh, to Singapore in order to prevent, protect uh, British territories that they're not at all convinced are, are vital to U.S. interests while leaving uh, Hawaii and, much more important, the U.S. West Coast completely exposed. So, uh, so through the initial staff, the run-up to the, the first staff talks between uh, the British and Americans, which take place between January and March 1941 and are known as uh, ABC1, the American-British Conference Number 1, um, there is uh, something of a, a standoff. Um, the British keep uh, pushing for, for that American screen in, uh, in the Far East and uh, 
uh, suggest various ways in which that uh, that that might be achieved, and uh, the Americans push back ever more firmly and argue that uh, British ambitions for such a screen are uh, completely unacceptable. Now, one of the the key elements in my book, which I don't think has been uh, um, properly uh, brought out by previous historians, is that uh, uh, the Americans come up with a very important compromise proposal during the ABC One talks, and I call this Atlantic substitution. And I mean, putting it very simply, I mean, what the Americans uh, say to the British is, uh, you keep uh, bellyaching about uh, um, securing your Far East territories and uh, holding on to Singapore and telling us that Singapore is uh, vital to the defense of the British Empire. We've told you that uh, we're not going to deploy our fleet to Singapore. If you feel it's so important, you're going to have to defend it yourself. Uh, But we can give you some help towards achieving that. And the way we will do that is by taking on increased responsibilities in the Atlantic. So we will not only take over um, a much uh, broader responsibility in the Western Atlantic, we will even deploy uh, capital ships to uh, Gibraltar and replace your Gibraltar force there. Um, that Western Atlantic and Gibraltar relief will enable you to release sufficient capital ship resources to uh, send a fleet to the Far East. Now, the problem with that for the British is that um, um, the forces that are released by Atlantic substitution are on the whole... uh, um, uh, the older battleships, which are not really equipped for uh, uh, for modern war in any theatre, and certainly not against uh, um, the modern forces that uh, the Japanese can deploy, both in quantity and, uh, and and quality. So, Atlantic substitution um, ends up being. Uh, um, something of a trap, I would argue, for, for, for the British. It, it provides uh, the theoretical wherewithal to create a new Eastern fleet, but it's not going to be the right sort of fleet to deal with Japan. One of the other things in your book that is also uh, fairly new to the debate is your argument argument that the British had a far more realistic assessment of the threat the Japanese posed in 1941 than has traditionally been argued, that in a sense what was driving a lot of this was their growing appreciation that the Japanese were a formidable force. They were not dismissing it and and sending out what becomes Force Z as sort of an assumption of, of a superiority, but that these discussions were a reflection of the intelligence that they were receiving, which you say was reasonably accurate in terms of the challenge that the Japanese were going to pose, which was going to require a very formidable response. Um, that's, that, that's correct. I mean, if I deal with um, the intelligence picture first, but then I think it, it needs to be linked to um, some other um, critical themes uh, in, uh, in in the book. Um, 
I mean, I do argue uh, in, in, in the book that um, uh, through the late 1930s and, uh, and then into uh, uh, the first uh, uh, two years of the European War, so up, up, up to the Japanese entry in late 1941, the British picture of uh, both um, um, the Japanese uh, uh, Navy and... Um, um, the Japanese air threat was was pretty good. Indeed, I, I think I used the phrase uh, um, the British intelligence uh, picture was as good as that on any other enemy at any other any other time. Um, and what I what I really argue is that uh, in terms of knowledge of um, the Japanese order of battle, um, what forces they had. Um, how they were structured, uh, how they would, how the, how they could be deployed. The picture was indeed um, extremely, extremely accurate, and I show, I think, I hope, fairly conclusively that uh, the accuracy of that picture was maintained right up to the moment of the uh, Japanese attack. Indeed, in the in the final weeks before the Japanese attack. I show that uh, the British were able to track uh, uh, the movements of uh, the Japanese uh, Southern Naval Task Force and the deployment of uh, um, their aircraft into Southern Indochina in uh, um, in really significant significant detail. Um, now there are always questions. You can have a very good intelligence picture, but how far you you manage to convey that picture? To, to the command in uh, in a way that the command uh, you know, fully fully understands um, can be can be another matter. But there's no doubt the the intelligence was there in Singapore. Um, but I want to step back perhaps to uh, um, um, some wider some wider themes in 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 the book now because we we talked about uh, the Anglo-American relationship. But um, I think the the other main uh, theme in uh, uh, the winter of 1940-41, and indeed um, through the year 1941, I would say it's in many ways the central theme of the book, is um, the British realization that um, um, maintaining control of the Indian Ocean is... Uh, uh, is fundamental to the successful prosecution of the war. Um, now, uh, now, why is that? Um, well, really, from 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 the, immediately after the fall of France, one of the things the British have to consider is uh, what do we now do about the Mediterranean? Um, we're we're standing against uh, Germany alone. Italy's entered entered the war. We have to cope with Italy as well. Um, do we uh, do we consider evacuating the Mediterranean completely? We can still hold Gibraltar and maintain control to the western entrance to the Mediterranean, but do we concentrate all our forces uh, uh, in, in in the Atlantic and um, and leave? The Mediterranean to the Italians, knowing that we have them safely bottled up because we can control the exit into the Atlantic. And uh, 
for for a brief period, that is indeed um, the Admiralty inclination. Um, however, there are quite rapidly uh, uh, counter views within uh, uh, the British leadership uh, who argue that uh, to uh, <clears throat> to withdraw from the Eastern Mediterranean is going to be extremely uh, um, costly in uh, um, in continuing uh, the prosecution of the war because an immediate consequence is going to uh, um, offer Germany and Italy safe access to uh, Romanian oil uh, by sea and to uh, to Russian oil uh, transported by sea. And this will increase um, the availability of their oil supplies by about 3 million tons a year, which is about... Uh, 30% of their 1940 supply. It will also, of course, provide uh, uh, easy access to, uh, to many other resources available in uh, the eastern Mediterranean, for example, Egyptian, um, e Egyptian cotton. And, um, and over time, it will give um, uh, Germany and Italy the ability to, uh, uh, to move into uh, 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 the countries bordering the eastern Mediterranean perhaps uh, strike up some sort of uh, deal with uh, with Iraq and gain control of Iraqi oil, um, which would uh, even more enhance um, the Axis uh, oil resources. So, so Britain's conclusion is that um, um, withdrawal from uh, the Mediterranean will involve uh, a high political and economic cost. It will um, lead to a major enhancement to Axis uh, war fighting capability, war potential, and um, and it will uh, correspondingly uh, make it much more difficult to uh, um, for Britain to uh, um, to contain to not just survive but to uh, contain uh, Axis Axis power. So that's that's the position in um, um, in in the autumn of um, uh, 1940, and through that winter, British thinking um, develops further, and uh, it increasingly recognises that uh, um, ensuring Germany cannot uh, get access not just to safe sea transport in the Eastern Mediterranean, but has no prospect of. Uh, Tapping into the oil of uh, oil resources of the Middle East is uh, uh, is immensely important, and um, that leads Britain to uh, to start pouring very significant land and air resources into the Middle East um, to protect uh, that uh, that that whole theatre, um, and um, um, and to ensure that. Uh, um, Access uh, uh, access to to the area is um, is is made um, extremely extremely difficult. Um, but to do that, it has to supply all those very large forces through the Indian Ocean. So control of the Indian Ocean in order to supply the Middle East becomes essential. And then in the summer of 1941, um, Germany attacks Russia. And uh, quite quickly, Britain uh, uh, recognizes that uh, 
um, its only means of uh, um, contacting uh, um, Russia through a land route is through Persia. That's the only point uh, uh, Britain and Russia cross, and uh, that offers scope for providing a a major alternative supply route into Russia in addition to the Arctic route, uh, which is, uh, is, is, is well known. Um, that, again, underlines the potential importance of uh, um, the Indian Ocean. Um, and finally, all the British territories in their eastern empire, so of which the most important are Australia, New Zealand, uh, India, and South Africa, depend for their oil supplies on the Persian Gulf and the refinery at Abadan. Um, and without that oil from Abadan, all those economies would, uh, would fail. So again, defense of the Indian Ocean becomes, uh, becomes critical. So they're faced with this challenge, which is not just a matter of defending that portion of the empire from Japan, but also securing it so as to ensure the successful prosecution of their war against Germany. Um, that's, that's correct. So, so I, I argue in the book that um, um, the, what I call the Eastern Empire, so the territories I've mentioned, uh, uh, Australia, New Zealand, India, and South Africa, provide about uh, 25% of uh, uh, Britain's war-fighting uh, uh, capacity. Um, now, that, that war potential is, uh, um, is, is, is partly uh, um, land-based military strength, and I think I make the point that by the end of 1941, um, those, uh, those four territories of the Eastern Empire are providing... Uh, uh, three quarters of the land power um, in, uh, in 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 the Middle East. Um, as we go further into the war, uh, those territories are not only providing um, uh, that military land power; they're equipping uh, that land power with most of the the small arms, though not uh, the heavy weaponry. They're also, of course, providing very significant. Uh, um, financial and raw material resources. By, uh, by the end of 1942, India is uh, um, financing about half the costs of uh, uh, the Middle East uh, and Far East theaters, so India, India, India alone. Um, and indeed, by, by the end of the war, Britain uh, is indebted to India to, I think, uh, 1.3 billion, which represents about three years of British GDP, which sort of underlines the, the scale of the Indian financial contribution. So I'm, what I'm underlining here is what that 25% war fighting capacity, capacity means. And as I've already mentioned, that war capacity has to be underpinned by the oil from uh, Abidjan. Um, and it's worth uh, emphasizing that not only does that oil underpin those, um, uh, those, those four economies, but as the war progresses, it, um, it, it, it underpins uh, important allied offensive operations. 
So it enables the Americans to uh, uh, to support China through 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 India, which would not have been possible without uh, Abidjan Oil, and uh, and it enables um, um, the American operations out of uh, out of Australia, which again would have been immensely difficult without uh, without that oil from uh, uh, from from Abidjan. So, so the initial uh, fight back against uh, Japan from uh, um, from both India and the Southwest Pacific is very heavily underpinned by that uh, uh, Eastern Empire infrastructure. So that leads to uh, that critical point in the book that the Indian Ocean is not uh, a sideshow. It's not a um, a discretionary option for, uh, uh, for 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 Britain and later the Allies. It's an inescapable commitment. And if the Japanese had been able to uh, um, to intervene in the Indian Ocean and uh, cut communications between India and Australia, or much worse, had been able to effectively cut even for a limited period communications in. Uh, uh, the Western Indian Ocean, the routes uh, up to the Middle East, and uh, um, and that uh, uh, supply route uh, to Russia through Persia, um, the consequences for uh, uh, Britain initially, and then the Allies would have been very severe. And that's not just the and that's not just the theoretical uh, supposition, uh, supposition because the Japanese did undertake such an incursion in uh, April of 1942, and it was incredibly disruptive. So, so you describe how the British are recognizing this, and they are beginning to make these preparations, and yet you explain that it's not they, they, it's not an easy matter to simply deploy all these ships because you should describe. A lot of their pre-war arrangements have and, and, and ideas have been disrupted by the war. Ships that they had intended to deploy to the Far East were at this point in need of refitting uh, or they were in need of repair due to uh, war damage. And so they are facing this growing threat. There's, a gr there's this awareness of just how important the Indian Ocean is, the East is, and yet their plans to respond to it are on a far longer timeline, it turns out, than the Japanese plans to, in effect, uh, take over that portion of the empire. Yes, that's, uh, I, I think it, it leads us to, uh, to another um, important, important theme in the book. So, um, so through... Um, 1941, the spring and summer of 1941, you get uh, a growing British realization that, uh, uh, as I say, the Indian Ocean is uh, is vital to uh, the effective prosecution of the war. Um, and uh, as I've already explained, that uh, um, that leads to. Uh, um, Awareness that uh, the western boundary of of the Middle East is uh, uh, is a vital commitment. Britain cannot risk uh, the Germans or the Italians penetrating through to the to uh, um, uh, the Suez Canal and uh, uh, and eventually to uh, to Iraq and potentially Persia. So 
So the Middle East has to be held with uh, defense in defense in depth, uh, all of which has to be uh, uh, orchestrated and supplied through the Indian Ocean. But of course, there is the problem of Japan um, at the other uh, end of this space on the, the eastern boundary. And um, I argue in the book that the fundamental uh, um, failing the British make in uh, 1941 is uh, not to recognize that uh, uh, they only have resources to uh, conduct forward defense at uh, either end of the uh, the Eastern Empire, but not uh, but not both ends. So, in other words, they can conduct a forward defense in uh, uh, in uh, the Middle East, and by forward defense in the Middle East, I mean on the uh, the border between uh, Egypt and Libya. I mean, you know, they can set that as uh, as a minimum uh, uh, boundary in, uh, in in the West, and uh, the other boundary is. Uh, um, the border, essentially, the border with uh, with with Turkey in 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 the north. So that's the sort of crucial western perimeter Britain needs to hold. Um, but if she deploys the resources to do that, then um, um, there will not be sufficient resources to conduct a forward defence uh, in in the Far East. And by forward defence in the Far East, I mean. Uh, uh, protecting Malaya and, um, and and Singapore, and uh, I emphasise in uh, in the book that uh, uh, by 1941, if Britain is going to um, not only protect Singapore as a base, but get any value from that base, then effectively it needs to control all of Malaya um, and actually significant parts of the Netherlands East Indies as well, the Netherlands East Indies being modern Indonesia. And the reason for that is that um, unless Britain holds a, um, a perimeter at least 300 miles around uh, around Singapore, then Singapore will be made uh, un- rendered unusable by Japanese uh, Air attack. I mean, the Japanese will be able to occupy territory and uh, develop air bases that uh, um, that uh, render it impossible to conduct any operations out of Singapore, assuming Britain can still hold a perimeter around it. So, um, so holding Singapore impl- uh, implies a significant uh, forward defence commitment. I mean, realistically, to hold Singapore. And uh, and that perimeter means deploying the sort of forces that Britain is pouring into the Middle East during 1941, and and I underline in the book that that is just not achievable. There are limits to uh, the forces and resources that Britain can release from uh, the United Kingdom. It can provide enough to secure the Middle East. It cannot. Uh, either release the resources or provide the shipping to cope with forward defense in uh, um, in the Far East as well. Um, so if the Americans are not going to do it, and we've already discussed that uh, they're not, then uh, uh, the sensible thing to do would have been to, uh, to pull back to, uh, um, to, uh, to an inner ring to... Uh, 
aim to secure the the border between uh, India and Burma, to build up in Ceylon, and to secure the sea routes between uh, uh, India and and, and Australia. Now, Britain could have kept a minimum defensive screen of Singapore, but accepted that if the Japanese attacked in strength, um, those... uh, those forces would be dispensable, or at least they would have to be withdrawn. Um, but Britain does not make that uh, does not make that choice, and uh, the reasons it doesn't make that choice, as we go through 1941, are um, quite uh, interesting and are carefully plotted through uh, uh, later later chapters of the book, and. Uh, uh, it's partly a question of uh, institutional failure. Um, for various reasons, the uh, uh, the British war leadership does not uh, uh, does not face up to the hard choices they really need to make over that uh, uh, Far East uh, screen. Um, the reasons they don't make them are um, partly uh, because they feel. Um, they've got time in hand that the Japanese, uh, while they pose a threat, are not going to intervene yet. So, uh, so there's always, they hope, um, time to uh, to build up additional forces if uh, if they have to. But again, the American relationship is is crucial here, and um, and during the second half of 1941, the Americans. Um, make a major change in their policy towards the Far East, which, uh, uh, again, I feel is something that's been uh, um, under-recognized by historians, certainly in Britain, but I would argue probably in the United States as well. And that's the decision to to not only uh, defend the Philippines, but to build up very significant forces in the Philippines. Um, as late as uh, August 1941, the Americans have judged the Philippines um, cannot be defended against a full-scale Japanese attack. But in 1941, they decide that uh, if uh, they pour in uh, um, significant additional resources, and particularly strategic air power um, and the fighters to protect that strategic air power, then uh, they can construct a viable defense. And, uh, and I show just how uh, ambitious those, uh, uh, those plans, um, which were to be executed um, through the last three months of uh, 1941 and first three months of 1942 were. Now, the British are well aware of these um, uh, changes to, to, to American thinking, and of course, it coincides with uh, uh, Atlantic substitution and the release of uh, um, British naval forces from uh, from the Atlantic. And I argue that through the autumn of 1941, um, even though those uh, uh, those forces were not uh, um, uh, the modern and credible forces that were really needed. Um, against Japan, um, the Admiralty was tempted into an unwise forward deployment uh, uh, policy because uh, 
it was aware of that growing uh, U.S. Um, um, strategic screen in, in in the Philippines. So the idea that uh, um, we can uh, send a fleet to to Singapore, even if it's not the most modern fleet, um, and the Americans will uh, uh, provide significant air power in the Philippines, and in time we can even um, move to Manila as a forward base, gets traction through that through that autumn. Um, it wasn't uh, a completely uh, uh, foolish concept. Um, I argue that uh, over time, with uh, the right reinforcements on uh, both British and American sides by mid-1942, um, a, a quite serious deterrent uh, capability could have been put together by the two allies in the Far East that could well have given Japan pause for thought. But um, as it turns out, Japan is uh, moving to a much more uh, rapid time scale and uh, is comfortably able to preempt those, uh, those ambitious plans. So you have, with the outbreak of war, this very famous series of setbacks, the attack on Pearl Harbor, the fall of the Philippines, the Japanese invasion of Malaya uh, the, and, and, and Dutch East Indies, their push into Burma. So it disrupts a lot of this last-minute planning, but you describe how in the aftermath of these setbacks, the British do recover and establish an effective naval defense in the Indian Ocean over the course of 1942. Um, that's, that's correct. Um, perhaps just before coming to that, I mean, I'm, I'm aware one thing we haven't covered is the, um, the story of 4Z, which uh, um, for completeness... Um, um, I mean, if you're happy, I mean, I'll just briefly summarize because I think it sort of fits into uh, um, this uh, um, wider framework of uh, British-American deterrence, which I've been describing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Please do. Um, I mean, up to, up, to, up to the late summer of uh, 1941. Uh, sorry, can you still hear me? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, up to the late summer of 1941, um, to recap briefly, I mean, the British have established that uh, the defense of the Indian Ocean is, is critical. There's broadly um, agreement between uh, the British political leadership, above all the prime minister and the admiralty, um, on, uh, on, what this, uh, on what this entails. Um, neither are expecting... Uh, an, an, an imminent uh, Japanese attack, so they believe there's, uh, there's still time in hand to uh, uh, to build up defences in the Indian Ocean, but they are increasingly committed to doing that, and uh, American substitution in the Atlantic is increasingly making it possible. Um, now, uh, at the same time, during that late summer, there is a discussion, which is the way I would put it, rather than a fierce argument, which is the way many historians have put it, between uh, uh, Churchill as Prime Minister and the Admiralty over the uh, initial composition of uh, reinforcements in the Indian Ocean. 
Now, the Admiralty has long planned to deploy um, in the event of Japanese intervention an initial force uh, um, from uh, from Gibraltar. So, I mean, their Gibraltar uh, guard force would be transformed, tra- trans transferred to the Indian Ocean uh, to meet uh, any imminent um, uh, Japanese threat. And uh, the Gibraltar force is quite a modern task force. I mean, it's a battle cruiser and a a modern aircraft carrier with uh, supporting elements. And Churchill suggests that um, it would be useful to uh, not only deploy this force, which has been long planned when the Americans relieve it, but to add a modern battleship as well. Um, he argues that this would be a much more capable package to uh, to deal with any Japanese incursion. Um, the Admiralty are not totally averse to that, but are concerned they only have um, limited numbers of modern battleships and can ill afford to uh, release them from uh, from the home fleet because of the, 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 the German threat and particularly their, their new modern battleship, the Tirpitz. So the Admiralty would rather keep uh, the maximum number of the most modern battleships they can in, uh, uh, in, home, in, in home waters. So that, uh, that argument is, uh, um, is left um, uh, unresolved um, in the late summer of... Uh, uh, 1941, um, but it it returns to uh, um, uh, to the table uh, two two months later when uh, um, there's the change of government in in Japan. Japan begins to look much more threatening, and uh, uh, the feeling within uh, the British government is that uh, um, it would be useful to. Uh, um, to demonstrate um, that Britain is building up its uh, its forces in the Far East, and that there would be merit in deploying a, a deterrent symbol, um, which means a naval force to uh, to Singapore, a highly visible force. This will give Japan pause for thought. Now, I think it's very important to underline what we've already said that uh, in making. Uh, um, in putting forward these ideas and uh, promoting this decision, the British are not acting in isolation. This is in the context of uh, um, the American moves we've already discussed to to reinforce uh, the Philippines, and uh, and certainly Antony Eden, the British Foreign Secretary, is, uh, is 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 very aware that there's an overall Allied uh, approach here. It's what Britain can do. It's what the Americans can do. There are also um, Dutch assets, and of course, Japan is preoccupied in in China. So he's making the not unreasonable argument that Japan is going to think twice before she takes on too many enemies here. Um, so if all of us contribute something in the way of reinforcements. Um, She's less likely to make uh, any 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 aggressive moves. Um, the Admiralty are committed to building up a fleet in 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 Singapore, but they're still reluctant to uh, to release uh, um, a modern battleship. 
uh, and the one available is famously the Prince of Wales. However, the political leadership insists. And um, the question um, which I then address in the book is uh, there is a difference which historians have not, uh, I feel, recognized between a, a decision to, uh, um, to deploy a, a deterrent force in principle and uh, the actual um, execution of the plan and... Uh, um, and there was um, plenty of scope during uh, um, the passage out of uh, Prince of Wales and her escorts to uh, um, to think again in the light of uh, the latest intelligence. And I show that the intelligence was quite good enough to uh, to demonstrate the increasing risks of war and uh, um, and the desirability of uh, holding. Uh, um, the force which becomes known as uh, uh, Force said in Ceylon rather than moving it all the way to Singapore where it would be in an exposed position. And I demonstrate that the real responsibility for why the force did carry on to Singapore was that the Admiralty was now committed to an unwise forward deployment strategy, um, partly influenced by the prospect of uh, uh, American cover in, uh, in in the Philippines, and so it was not the case that uh, it was the Prime Minister um, pushing for the deployment of force to Singapore, regardless of risks. But the Admiralty overlooking those uh, those risks in the belief that uh, um, the Americans uh, could could provide them with. Uh, uh, with, with, with cover and that the important thing was to build up uh, a joint force as quickly as possible. The problem, of course, with the joint force strategy, as you describe, is that ultimately you put together, even after the destruction of Force Z, a kind of a hodgepodge of ships that have never worked together and they're facing against a you know, a, 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 a unitary force that's been training with the, uh, amongst themselves for years. Um, that's that that's correct, and uh, um, I I mean I would go further. I underline um, again that um, um, there's the theory of this uh, um, joint reinforcement, this uh, quite ambitious uh, new uh, uh, deterrence screen, primarily Anglo-American deterrence screen, Royal Navy fleet in Singapore and eventually Manila, major American uh, air deployment to, uh, to the Philippines, and uh, its practical implementation, which is going uh, to take uh, many months. It's not just a question of uh, deploying the ships and, and, and the aircraft, but it's uh, providing all the logistics support. It's safely supplied. Uh, over time, it's ensuring that uh, uh, strategic bombers in uh, the Philippines can be adequately de defended with fighter power. But likewise, if a fleet's going to deploy to Singapore, there's an adequate uh, uh, fighter screen, uh, either British or American, available in, uh, in, in, in Malaya. Now, all these questions should have been um, addressed and uh, the risks in uh, um, initial 
preemptive deployments of uh, uh, just parts of the planned force should have been uh, should have been worked through, and I demonstrate that uh, that they really weren't. Um, so, uh, um, so force Z arrives in uh, in Singapore and uh, um, almost simultaneously during. Uh, um, uh, October and November, the first uh, B-17 strategic bombers uh, are arriving in, uh, in in the Philippines, along with uh, uh, with some initial fighter protection. But um, but it's all being uh, uh, put together um, uh, very hastily without um, um, uh, the backup that is really needed to make uh, to make to make them viable. So in the Philippines, uh, um, the uh, the right uh, radar warning facilities are not in place. Uh, uh, the airfield uh, facilities uh, are only uh, partially available. Um, little has yet been done on ambitious plans to uh, um, enable the B-17 force to move to. Uh, air bases throughout the whole region. Um, the British, despite American encouragement, have not uh, um, been uh, 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 sufficiently determined in, uh, in, in building up their, their fighter defenses in Malaya to protect the fleet in Singapore and uh, any deployment north of Singapore off the Malayan coast. So... So you end up at the beginning of December with um, forces in a small naval force, British naval force in Singapore, and uh, um, an initial American uh, air force in uh, uh, the Philippines that uh, uh, are incomplete, incomplete, uh, poorly defended, and um, highly vulnerable to a preemptive strike. And that, of course, is, uh, is what happens. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. Before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? I'm currently working on uh, a new book, which um, um, is, I mean, the working title is British Naval Intelligence in the 20th Century. Sounds like a very interesting book. I look forward to reading it when it comes out. Andy, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Well, thank you very much.